0: My name's Ghislaine Halpeny, I'm the Director of Strategy and External Affairs at the British Property Federation.
1: Welcome to Why Everybody Hates You, an audio support group for reputation professionals. If you have any responsibility for how people talk, think and feel about your organisation, then you're in the right place. My name is Daisy Powell Chandler. And today I'm talking to Ghislaine Halperny about why everybody hates the property sector. Welcome Ghislaine, it's really lovely to have you. I'm going to kick off with a hard question. Why does everybody hate you?
0: Thanks Daisy, Uh, just what you want (laughs) in the morning. So I think I think it's a real challenge why everybody hates us and as as you know we did a piece of work around this last year and the year before to try to try and establish firstly whether it was really true because we'd always had our suspicions um and then to try and dig a bit deeper and find out why that was indeed the case um people don't always like or think they don't like the property industry because they don't really understand what it is and in many cases, they don't like the bit of it that they think we are. So, that might be the bit of it that they have their daily connection with, whether it be um, an estate agent, whether it be construction work. They don't necessarily see the broader picture. And that provides a huge challenge, but also a huge opportunity. Because what we discovered is that whilst lots of people really you know, what lots of people don't like us, even more people feel completely neutral about us because they simply don't know. And those people are the people that we can try and turn around to to become favourable towards us in the long run. And just so that everybody
1: out there listening understands, what's your role in all of that?
0: So I work for the British Property Federation, which is the trade association for the commercial real estate sector across the UK. So our members are often those with long term interests in commercial real estate. So whether it be uh, people who build offices or uh, blocks of uh, build-to-rent flats, um, shopping centres, infrastructure, big distribution sheds, all of that sort of thing. So it's the people who build something and then keep maintain the ownership in it rather than building it and flipping it on.
1: Okay. And those problems that you've talked about in the reputation, the reasons why people don't like you or think they don't like you, what are the key reasons in there? What are the, the big red flags?
0: Um, from the research that we did, people think that the sector is largely made up of wealthy men. They think it's very London centric and they think often it's very elitist. And whilst a lot of those things can be said to be true, and certainly that's highlighting some problems that the sector really does have. The sector is also really quite diverse And there are and, and we use the word real estate and it covers a multitude of sins. Um, so there, you know there, there is everything there from construction to estate agency to those investors in in community and place who really want to create better places for their children, their grandchildren, and the generations to come. And that's and that you know we we say those things glibly as as comms professionals, but it is actually true.
1: Yeah, and a, a really exciting opportunity, though. Right now, pretty hard times to be talking about those
0: opportunities. Absolutely, um, and the the current. Covid nineteen crisis brings all of this into into you know a really difficult place. We are not able to build as much as as much as we want. The investment market is looking as is we think going to be looking quite sluggish going forwards. One of the challenges with the real estate sector, because of the way that the planning system works, is that you often only see the practical knock on effects twelve months later. So the investment decisions being made now will be around whether to put in a planning application now. That kind of thing might only come out a bit later, so it' it really is a, a, a delay factor and the, the data to collect around that is really hard. There are also really big problems and challenges around ta- town centers and high streets um you know with with a lot of retail being closed with people being told to stay at home or at least stay alert uh, we we have a reduced spend and reduced footfall. Those shops are shut. A lot of those shops can't afford to pay the rent. A lot of those shops, even if they can afford to pay the rent, don't want to pay the rent because they see others not paying the rent. And that means that for the landlord, for the commercial landlord, there's very little income coming in. Uh, commercial rent is paid quarterly. So at March quarter day, we know that about, well, that we, we know that rent collection figures were down. We've got June quarter day coming up. And the, the word that is being used right, left and centre by everybody is that it will simply be a bloodbath. Government understand that, but commercial landlords are not always the ones who get the big sympathy vote. They're seen as the big, you know, pinstripe-suited, Bentley-driving, cigar-smoking men who really don't need a helping hand. But actually, often it's pensions, it's it's our pensions, it's your pension, it's my pension. And it's the the investment that those people put into the centres, to the town centres, that keep our towns alive and well.
1: So it sounds like that reputation of being elitist, of not being diverse, has had a lot of real world knock on effects over the last few months that you're seeing concretely, the impact of not being seen to be a sympathetic sector to help out in something like the COVID crisis.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely um and it's something which is which is you know a a real challenge for us and in our conversations with government there are bits of government that understand it there are bits that really get it and certainly from the work we did a few years ago we can really see that we you know we did we did an mp a big mp's panel um and if you you know there, there are some MPs of different persuasions who really get who we are but an awful lot who don't really And their mailboxes are full of people complaining about Mrs. Bloggs' garden shed next door, which is a bit big and it blocks the light and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when you say real estate, that's what they associate it with, rather than the big investment, often international investment that comes into this country to make the places that we want to shop and spend our leisure time and send our children to school in. How
1: are you going to change that? What have you put in place to try and mitigate those reputation
0: effects? Well, I think some of it is about the language that we use. You know, we, we, the, the real estate sector is a terrible one for using an awful lot of acronyms. Um, and that in itself is, is, is very, very challenging for lots of people, including us, to remember what they all are. So it's changing the language we use around, around it. I think one of the things about the Covid crisis is it actually produce, it produces a huge opportunity. Um, and one of the really interesting kind of practical changes that it that it has provided us with that local authorities who usually hold planning committees, so where your planning application is decided by officers in a drafty town hall of a Thursday night once a month, they now hold them online. So when people have got nothing else to do at home and they're sitting there thinking, "Oh God, I've finished Netflix. What am I going to do with my time now?" I know I'm going to go and watch a planning committee. And Actually, the what we're seeing beginning to see is that those audiences for planning committees are a completely different demographic, and that it is no longer you know the person who feels particularly strongly about this or that or the other. Actually, it's people often those not often those but including those with protected characteristics who are really able to engage with the process. So there are lessons we can learn. And it would be great if we can take those through to what the new normal or what the post-COVID world or whatever we're supposed to be calling it now looks like and try and engage that that wider audience.
1: That's really interesting and something I, I hadn't heard before. I don't think I would have guessed that taking planning committees online would have massively increased uptake. So reaching out to people with different characteristics, changing language, anything else that you and the sector are doing to try and change your reputation to allay some of the problems you've had this time around.
0: Well, we're telling the story about what the sector does. You know what this it, it's not about the big glass monolithic buildings. It's about creating social benefit, environmental benefit and also the financial benefit too. The financial benefit is widely understood and people assume that that is indeed, you know, the contribution to the economy. That people get that and that's great. When Asked a bit more broadly about the social and environmental, that was the bit where everybody felt a bit more kind of wobbly and a bit more squeamish. And actually, if you look at the way that most of our members work, and you look at most of the commercial real estate sector, their contribution certainly to the, to the social uh, well being is is enormous, and that's something that they, that's really important to them. Their investments are not going to be. Um, healthy, if they don't create somewhere where people want to be, where there is, you know, that the, the happiness and well-being indexes are high. Um, and all of these things are stories that are there, but are simply not being told very well or, or in any sort of collective way.
1: Hmm. But that's very difficult, isn't it? As a As a membership organisation, with resources that are limited, how do you go about creating a consensus about how to measure those things and how to bring them together?
0: Well, we are working on what that might look like. Before, in a pre-COVID wor- world, we were talking about um, looking at some sort of social social so, uh, impact measurements. Um, th- those are obviously going to be more challenging now, partly because... We aren't quite sure what our members are going to be able to collect this year, partly because the story that we're going to tell this year needs to be a bit different. The sector is doing a lot for its for, for communities that are being hit by Covid. It is, you know, changing the way that it works in order to adapt for its own staff. Um, so we are in the process at the moment of working out what that what that new report might look like and uh, and thinking about when when would be a good time and how to publish it.
1: And are there different ways, I mean, obviously, we talk to different stakeholder groups in a different manner. So at the moment, you're engaging very intensively with government. But have you looked at how the sector speaks to consumers directly or to other stakeholder groups beside
0: government? We have. And it's really interesting. There's a huge variety in approach across, across, our, across our membership. Um, some who do it very well are really aware of the fact that, you know, that drafty town hall is not going to speak to many of their residents. And actually it's about door knocking and it's about getting out there on the ground and having those conversations and having those conversations in a way that doesn't make it feel like you've got a man in a suit uh, with a briefcase who's come to show you a a pamphlet about what they're going to impose on you and your community. It's about someone who's a bit more approachable arriving with a blank sheet of paper and some ideas and making people and helping people feel that they're being allowed to feed into the process and and are being planned with rather than planned to um, and that that's that's really important and and sharing that best practice is something that we really try and do you know the sector is as, as broad as it is long and so there are pockets of, of fantastic excellent you know best practice and then there are pockets of of, uh, of organizations who probably don't do it quite as well or quite as naturally who is doing that really well um I mean some of those who do it really well are some of the bigger states you know they've got they've got deep pockets they've got very very established feet in in established feet established roots in in their locations so someone like Grosvenor does that really really well um the the kind of the big REITs so that's the real estate investment trust so someone like British Land someone like Land Securities Landsec now do it extremely well and they've got the resources to be able to do it and they are forward thinking and that you know that that's that's how they get to where they are
1: I think that's particularly interesting because I suspect they are, those landed estates are some of the ones that possibly in people's minds most clearly conform to that man in a Bentley stereotype that you referred to earlier. And yet it sounds like they're doing some of the best work to engage. Is that because they needed to, to to allay some of those suspicions, or is that just because they are planning for the longer term, and therefore their priorities are a bit different?
0: It's a combination of the two. You know, you can't have a good relationship with your with your wider stakeholder group unless they trust you, um, and that that is the key. You know, one of the key words throughout all of this is is trust, and there's a huge amount of of worry about real estate and the, and the, the, you know, the big, nasty corporate developer is going to come in and do something to you. And if you don't trust your local authority to make the right decision and you don't trust your developer to come in and do something that's going to be of benefit, then then it all falls to pieces. I mean, a lot of the criticisms, or rather criticisms, perceptions around, uh, you know, wealthy elitist and particularly male are true. And it is a sector which is trying very, very hard in all of those directions. And there are an awful lot of organisations doing really, really great work to broaden the appeal at, at at, at the early stages of real estate. So to make sure that we get a really diverse group of people coming into the sector. If you're going to plan great places, if you're going to make great places, you've got to make places that are going to appeal across the community. And the only way you can do that is by having people from across the community making those plans in the first place. That's the only way you can really understand your customer base. So those organizations are out there trying really hard and doing great work in schools, doing great work in universities, trying to make sure that we, that we get that diverse population. The challenges are you know, enormous and are often quite slow to move through. There are still difficulties in, in getting, um, you know, w- women through the system. If you if you look at uh, the kind of entry level statistics for for uh, gender diversity, it's not too bad. Women get to their mid-30s, their early to mid-30s, and often that becomes a bit more challenging and they, and they move on. So a lot of organisations are doing really good work to see what that's about. Is that about maternity leave? Is that about the way that organisations work around flexible working, childcare requirements and all of that kind of thing? Or is it the culture? Is it that there's still a bit of a boys' club about going to the pub at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon, and actually, lots of people don't really want to do that anymore? That's also alienating for people from different kinds of backgrounds. You know that again, that kind of heavy drinking society that often is—you know—the sector feels it uh, it has some kind of fondness for—is is is quite alienating for other people sometimes.
1: Hmm, is that frustrating because you? in your role, are kind of the holder of the reputation of the relationship. Um, Is that frustrating because you don't necessarily have a direct key into changing those things?
0: It's frustrating on a number of different levels. I mean, it's not going to be something that I single-handedly am going to be able to change in the next couple of years. It's something that hopefully when my small boys grow up and they say to me, I'd quite like to go and, you know, work in the real estate sector which is quite possible given the current fondness for diggers um that i won't feel that it's a it, it's a kind of elitist homogenous group of people so seeing that really slow incremental change can be quite a challenge so you've got to take your wins where you can um and i suppose the sector coming together and realizing that diversity is is not only you know something that's nice to have and something that looks really nice on pictures where you haven't just got white men but actually is business critical is a huge step forward.
1: I think it can be a real challenge for us communications practitioners because we see that there are reputation issues or risks in a particular course of action and can sometimes feel that we don't have as much influence as we might like in those areas. What's your experience been of trying to communicate risk and to help your members and your organisation understand reputation risk?
0: it's a challenge you often you know as, as you as you know you get those conversations where you stand up when you give a presentation around what people think of you and everybody says oh but it's not true and i know that already or words to that effect of, of varying severity and then it does it does sink in and one of the one of the um i suppose opportunities that we have as a, as a trade body is that we can use our convening power we can get people in the room together we may not have the deepest resources. We may not, you know, we are, we are a very small team in London. We're a team of only about 20. So there's only so much we can do, but we can get people to come and talk to each other and we can get people to work from each other, work with each other and to learn from each other. And that's something that is really powerful. And we have a fantastic um, membership who are very, very good at leaving their commercial and competitive hats at the door. And will come and work together for the, you know, for for the greater good of the industry moving forwards. We've talked
1: about how COVID is hitting the industry and the bloodbath that is going to be quarter day. Do you think that these reputation issues will be seen as more important in light of that bloodbath, or? will they necessarily be hit because commercial imperatives will drive people back into their individual silos and, and put people's backs up and make it harder to do that kind of collective work that you're talking
0: about? It's really interesting. If you'd asked me that question four or five weeks ago, I would have said, I think this is going to be really difficult. I think we're going to come out of this somewhere in a place where commercial imperatives are going to absolutely be the driving force. And we're going to potentially go back to a bad old world with bad old ways where you know these things get forgotten about and we're going to have to start again conversations over the last couple of weeks it's been quite clear from the membership that their investors and their boards and when they've been doing their you know their shareholder roadshows the questions that are coming to them are around ESG investment and how are you doing with that and is that still important and it's still important to us and that can't be forgotten and that drive ultimately be will be what shapes the next few years. So whilst there may be some parts of the sector who have a very difficult 12 months and particularly some parts of the sector who don't survive, for those that are there, it feels like those drivers are very much front of mind for everybody else. And that's really reassuring. What that translates to in the real world is a challenge, um and particularly around, you know, the in, the, the intake of, of people that you know, there's going to be a generation of I say a generation, there'll be a couple of years of people who will come out and the and the job world will be the job market will look very, very different. But that did feel like a really reassuring moment where we've where we've been having those conversations.
1: Mm, deeply reassuring. Do you think that will impact your program
0: as an organisation? I hope it means that we can keep going on the really good track that it felt we were on um, I hope it means that we can keep you know that we that we can measure that social impact that we can have those conversations and we don't simply have to go back to the sort of negotiations on the on the on the more commercial basis solely um, I worry that some of the smaller organizations particularly that focus around diversity and inclusion will find it difficult as the members inevitably have some have shallower pockets that they will find it difficult to, to stay alive and to stay supported. Um, you know that will that will inevitably be the case, but we we will have to see where we end up.
1: Do you get the sense when you're having conversations with government that they are inclined to include more conditionality around ESG type performance?
0: Interesting. Um, up to a point yes i think if you look at if you look at the driving forces around organizations and agencies such as homes england um that's you know those kind of esg principles are really really important not only to the agency as a whole but also personally to the exec team and they certainly put a lot of store by by you know those those kinds of things so absolutely there are bits of government where that really is a driver Whether that's the case across the board, I'd be less less convinced at the moment. But, you know, fingers crossed. That's
1: everything from us. A big thank you to my guest, Gislaine Halpenny of the British Property Federation, for sharing a great case study of the real-world impacts of poor reputation and giving us a glimpse of how reputation can be improved at the sector level. I hope you'll join me in two weeks' time when I'll be talking about why reputation matters to investors. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do find us at whyeverybodyhatesyou.co.uk. Subscribe and leave us a review on your favourite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Why Everybody Hates You, and remember... You are not alone.